Okay, welcome back everybody to the Murmurations podcast. Today's guest is my colleague, Dr. Sarah Hill. Morning, Sarah. Morning. Sarah is a lecturer in media and cultural studies in uh, our subject area at Newcastle University in media culture heritage. And Sarah is going to talk to us today about her research in um, media and cultural studies and specifically on disability and before we get into any detail just what I tend to do with all guests is just you give us a quick run through of your background and research and teaching interests and motivations for kind of studying what you study. Um, well my background is in media and film studies um, so I would define my research interests broadly as feminist media studies, girlhood and disability and disability is the latest um, addition to my, to my research. I started uh, with my PhD at UEA looking at uh, young femininity and contemporary British cinema which I'll probably come back to a bit later um, but my work more recently at Newcastle um, is developing work around the intersections between uh, girlhood, gender and disability in social media. There's a lot that we could talk about in your research but we were going to focus today on the stuff that you're doing about disability um, both in terms of media coverage of disability and the kind of public discourse around disability. What do you want to talk about the the project that you're currently working on in relation to the self-representation of, of disabled girls? Yeah, I'm currently uh, working on a project that I've loosely titled Disabled Girlhood and what I'm interested in there is how um, gendered identities and disabled identities intersect through uh, disabled young women's self-representation practices on social media and the reason why I'm interested in this is because you quite often find that disability becomes the sort of overarching identity for a disabled person and it, it subsumes other identity categories like gender, class and race into the background and disability becomes the main focus and I wanted to look at how these identities intersect so what it means to be a girl who is disabled at that intersection. Um, and obviously we know that young people live their lives with and th within and through social media. So I thought it was a really um, useful way of looking at how they present themselves and how they live their lives. Yeah. We were talking before about the tensions between people, um, the tensions between how the medical community diagnose people with disability and how people with disability um, understand the position that they're in um, either because they haven't got a diagnosis or because they don't want the diagnosis that they have necessarily and and you you do you do some research or you're looking at uh, the way in which people talk about this kind of stuff in terms of self-representation as well aren't you yes yeah, so basically um, in disability studies there tends to be two models of disability. One is the medical model of disability that says um, somebody 
is, can't do something because of this impairment and there's something wrong with them. So it's a very negative framing of disability, um, which we've tried to move away from over the years. And then there's the preferred model, which is the social model, which says that a person is disabled by society and unequal access. Um, so the obvious example of this is if you take a wheelchair user and put them in an environment that's completely level access, then they can just go about their daily lives quite freely. But if you take away the lift and just leave a set of stairs, then they're disabled by that poor access because they can't access the things that um, non-disabled people can. Yeah. So within the project, um, I have to consider, basically I'm working with a self-identification form of disability so I'm not relying on diagnostics to identify the girls as disabled it's up for them to, to define themselves as such right but it's often quite a tricky area because there are people who feel disabled but can't get a medical diagnosis to support that so they don't get the right access to the support that they need sure and there are people who are medically defined as having a disability but they don't identify as being disabled because it's still a stigmatized identity and it has okay. negative connotations still yeah okay for a lot of people you've explained that very clearly in a way that i was trying to get out of it going, i couldn't, <laughs> couldn't make it clear at all um so i think that's really important because i don't think that's that's a familiar tension um or they are complexities that I don't think would be familiar to a lot of people outside of the area of research that you do. And, you know, people who just um, aren't close to this kind of experience in a day-to-day -day context. Um, th that idea that you can have the difficulty of carrying a disability that either can't be diagnosed or has been diagnosed, but it's still the social stigma and, uh, around it that people would prefer to to try to, to not um, have to kind of carry as a kind of social baggage. Mm. Um, one thing that we've also talked about before was, uh, which I was interested in was how we, there is a growing, there is growing attention and a more um, to disability and a more um, constructive public discourse around disability. Um, and more more efforts to be uh, inclusive and so on but i'm all i it always makes me wonder whether we say the right things and do the right symbolic things and try to uh, promote the right ethos through media and public discourse and so on but whether that experience really translates into anything for people who um have difficulties on a daily basis that a lot of us don't even think about what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think there has been more sort of representation, representational attention paid to yeah. disability, but I do think it's only certain kinds of disabled people who are coming through there. So um, sort of people who are more, um, their, uh, their kind of impairment or their form of disability is e more easily recognisable and understood. So, for example, a wheelchair user is more easily understood than someone with a hidden disability or with a sort of more neurodiverse um, 
identity. So it, it does depend on, on, the, on the type of impairment. Mm. Um, and also I think that while this representational visibility is very helpful, we can see on a day-to-day -day level that government policy does not support disabled people. Um, Adequately enough. Exactly. So we've seen it particularly since sort of 2008, the financial crash, disabled people became the folk devils of austerity. So there was a lot of discourse, particularly around the sort of right wing press, like the Daily Mail, about uh, so-called benefit scroungers and people taking off the state at, mm. at a time when the state supposedly didn't have any money. Um, and this had very real life consequences for a lot of disabled people whose support was cut back even further. And um, Francis Ryan, the Guardian journalist, has, re has written a really good book about this called Crippled, where she interviews um, a lot of disabled people and, and their sort of lived experiences of disability in this period. And there are some shocking and dire situations uh, within the book. And we're seeing it even now with COVID, it, to sort of bring it up to date, there was a lot of uh, discourse about people who deserve medical treatment in an emergency situation at a time when the NHS was uh, possibly going to be at capacity. Um, so there's, there's a lot of concern amongst many disabled people and their families that those with more severe uh, disabilities would not get prioritised for ventilator intervention if they got COVID and what that would mean for them. Mm. This is this is something that makes me really frustrates me that previous point that you were talking about in relation to austerity as well, especially is that I, I think that the vast majority of people, if they actually saw um, the day to day suffering that people experience, that regardless of what we say about how people vote and whether that means that you're good or bad or whatever, the vast majority of people, if they really knew the truth and they could see people's situations, they would say, we should help that person mm. or we should help these people. But this is, this is why the, the, the stories that we tell as a society and the stories that we fed, that we're fed, particularly about the welfare state are so problematic because this isn't about just whinging and moaning and, and and uh, looking after scroungers and so on. These are really lived experiences and realities on the ground that that people, I don't think people are saying, I don't care about the disabled. But the tragic thing about this is because I think people do care, but they're being fed stories that lead them to believe that most of this money is spent on things that it's not spent on. Most of it, is, it really does go towards helping people who really need to be helped. And they don't get that help when we have this really unhelpful public discourse around welfare. Um, yeah, and particularly around productivity as well, because we live in these neoliberal capitalist times. Mm. Disabled people are seen as much less productive than non-disabled people when actually, you know, we've seen now how flexible working patterns really make a difference. And if that support was available, uh, disabled people make huge contributions to the economy but obviously the discourse around that doesn't reflect that mm. and I think I think you're right a lot of people aren't saying let's not help disabled people it's they they think it's kind of oh we don't mean you we mean the other ones but yeah. you know who are the other ones and um, when benefit 
fraud cases, for example, the figure is something like 0.5%, like it's really, really tiny. Um, and everyone else is, is sort of genuinely, uh, um, sort of, they, they fit the criteria for those benefits. So. Yeah, I mean, one question I've got for you actually has just come to mind is that I heard somebody, who was a Dutch, retired Dutch footballer who was, there was a conversation during a, it was an international football tournament. I think they were talking about um, disability in football and he was using the term um, differently abled. Mm. And now I, I wasn't sure what I, I wanted to ask you what you think about that term, because on the one hand, I could tell that he was trying to make a point that uh, some disabled people can contribute and it's not that they're, they're not, you know, they're less worthy in that way that you just said about working and capitalism and so on. Um, he was trying to make the point that uh, that these people can contribute in just in other ways. But equally, in that terms of that social model you were talking about earlier on, it, there's a danger that what is what is supposed to be quite a helpful progressive term could actually undermine a real problem because you're trying to say what because of the social kind of structures and conditions, it's not differently abled, it is disabled because you're not accommodating for people's disabilities. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I spend a lot of time uh, looking at disabled communities on the internet as part of my research and the term differently abled does not go down well no. in those spaces yeah. for that reason. So if we say differently abled, it again puts the onus on the individual yes. to fit in and sort of see themselves that way. Whereas if when we use the word disabled, we're acknowledging that there are structural inequalities that need to be addressed in yes. order to ensure full participation. Yeah. I think this is why these conversations are really important because um, that was a really good example of somebody who was trying felt like they were trying to push the conversation forward and had the best intentions and was trying to be constructive and actually because of those social conditions you're talking about it doesn't mean it doesn't have the meaning of that that's intended in a lived kind of experience or a day-to-day -day sense mm. um, i think it stems as well from from this idea of disability being so stigmatized and people being very fearful of disability so i think when people try and use terms like differently able, they think they're being helpful because they assume that one wouldn't want to be disabled and that it's a negative identity. When actually people in the disability community very much uh, take, take ownership of their disabled identity and see it as a significant aspect of their identity. Without it, they wouldn't be the person they are. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's almost saying, don't don't worry, I'm not sitting here feeling sorry for myself. I would just like you to make some basic changes that will enable me to be included. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't sound very difficult at all when we talk about it like that, but um, it's surprising how much lag there is between uh, the the things that we're doing in what you said earlier, a representational way. That is all done with the best of intentions and the lived experience of day-to-day -day sense um i think that's a really important thing to draw attention to in these kinds of conversations um on that point there was something we talked about before um which again i was interested in 
the example of the Paralympics. So the way in which, and again, it's not, it's not about being doom and gloom because anybody listening thinking, oh, we're trying to do all these great things and you're looking for problems. It's not that, but the, the Paralympics was a standout example for me as something that's really spectacular and really great. And it's not just, it's not just this, this kind of tag on thing that's just done just to um, look progressive or be politically correct or something. It is this brilliant sporting spectacle and there are superstars in there who the public absolutely love and it's a phenomenal thing. But is there a danger sometimes that these things, these spectacular events happen and these really big, brilliant um, things are a success? And then we, therefore, we think, oh, well, it's great. We're doing really well. But actually, again, that day-to-day experience is almost more frustrating because it's like, I need to get to work. It's like, <laughs> it's great. You've got the Olympics. I need to get to work sort of thing. Yes. I mean, if I start with the positives of the Paralympics, I, yeah. think, I think it is great to showcase disability sport on the main stage yeah. alongside the Olympians. And I think um, Channel 4 did a really good job in 2012 of making it just as big as the Olympic coverage and really integrating it into their schedule. So those Paralympians um, like Johnny Peacock and Hannah Cockrock became household names in the same way as like Mo Farah or Jess Ennis um, and those kind of stars. So I think the increased awareness of the Paralympics has been has been very good over the last uh, few years, but it is, as you said, a bit of an issue in that it's basically it's how most audiences are introduced to disability outside of their own lived experience. So it does create this bit of an idea. There's there's a term in disability studies called the supercrit. And the Paralympian falls into this category because the supercrit is either an example of a disabled person getting praised for doing very ordinary things that other people think they, they aren't able to do, or a disabled person who is held up for doing excessive, uh, really extravagant things like the Paralympics. I mean, that is a feat that most disabled people cannot meet. Mm. Um, because it takes years of training and years of skill and it's not you know not part of everyone's lives mm-hmm. and it's also not what a lo- what all disabled people want to achieve either and I think I've had conversations with people about this before there's more emphasis on disability sport but sometimes I think at the expense of other activities and not everybody wants to be involved in sports um, in, in that sort of in that sort of way um, but yeah. it becomes a sort of default way, default representational way that people understand disability, I think. Yeah, yeah. When we were talking about the Olympics as well, I just sat, I just thought of, um, of the last leg as well, mm. because what Channel 4 did was quite good in the way that it wasn't just about the sport and spectacle. It was that move into kind of popular culture afterwards as well. And that show has been really successful. And I... You could tell me if I'm wrong, but this is just from my perspective as, as an audience member. They seem to have had, they tread a very careful line and they somehow have managed to kind of relax the atmosphere and environment and conversation around disability a little bit. 
through their own kind of sense of humor and the way in which they they're kind of mocking each other and so on but not in this kind of inhumane or brutal sense well that's from my perspective but what what from your perspective what do you think about the last leg i agree i, I actually really like the last leg i think yeah. i think they've done well to make it transition from being a sort of paralympic tie-in to being its own standalone show now yeah um, yeah and I think the way they use humour to approach, well, not just disability, but social issues in general is very yeah, clever, yeah. while also raising awareness. I think they do very good um, politically charged monologues on the show as well. Yeah, um, they do. That really highlight sort of general everyday political issues. Yeah. Yeah, when they stop, they kind of, they'll they'll kind of pause the humour for a minute, and they'll make a serious point about something, and it's it has it's it's quite powerful sometimes. Um, we can't sort of we can't knock it because it's bringing uh, disability to a mainstream audience on a Friday night. Yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah. Excellent. I mean, one one other thing that I wanted to ask you was clearly from what we're talking about there's significant public interest in this in this um, topic and there's a growing conversation around it and there are significant issues to address between um the kind of the the, the representational side of the media that we've talked about and the experience that we've also discussed for people in a day-to-day -day sense but given that why is it then that our fields of research and particularly critical research don't seem to have there doesn't seem to be as much published or talked about in terms of disability or if there is it's it I mean it certainly isn't on my radar in the same way that other topics are what if that's the case why do you think that is um i think it's partly if we're talking about media studies partly because disabled people are so underrepresented anyway in the text that we study that you know it doesn't come up a huge amount and i think a, a lot of it is drawn from experience so you know i'm a disabled researcher i probably wouldn't be doing this research if i wasn't disabled myself because i don't think these kind of ideas occur to people um, more generally and i think a lot of researchers will if if you really press them on it will say their research stems out of uh, sort of personal interests and, and their own experiences in some way which we then take on and develop so I think unless you have a lot of experience of disability you're not likely to be drawn to it as a field of research yeah I think that's a really valid point because it's and it's again it's the importance of inclusivity it's um it's not that we can just turn our attention to topics that aren't covered enough and then just just cover them mm. um of course that that can help but it doesn't really fulfill the task required because then you you have people leading on things that they can't fully appreciate from a kind of lived experience which is such a valid insight so i think it's a really good point um I've got lots of beeping going on in my headphones. I don't know whether that's coming through or not, but <laughs> apologies if it is. Um, did you want to talk about your, your other project as well, which is kind of going back in time a little bit, but 
your PhD that's now feeding into your current book that you're writing with Bloomsbury? Yes, um, the book the book is out now. Actually, the ebook version is out now, and the hardback is coming uh, in a few weeks' time. I think the press was slightly delayed by COVID, but it is coming. Um, so it's called uh, Young Women, Girls, and Postfeminism in Contemporary okay. British Film. Um, and this, this is based on my PhD research at UEA and really where my interest in girlhood uh, properly started. So I look in the film, in, sorry, in the film, in the book, at a range of contemporary British films uh, between 2000 and 2015. And I'm particularly interested, A, in how discourses of girlhood are mediated within these texts and their uh, their critical reception, so film review discourse as well, and also how these films mediate discourses of post-feminism, um, which is often seen as a transnational concept, and it is to a large extent, but I argue in the book that um, it can be sort of modified and articulated within national frameworks, and a British articulation of post-feminism has its own characteristics right. um, so the two that I look at in particular uh, one takes the idea of the post-feminist makeover uh, which we see in a lot of uh, Hollywood films as, as the woman gets made over into the ideal feminine subject and what we see in these British films is this kind of ambivalence towards makeover so because it's a contemporary trope they do include it but they're kind of they're not they don't fully commit to it because the post-feminist makeover typically relies on consumption and glamour and the british uh british discourse and british identity is very sort of skeptical of this idea of glamour because it seems a very american characteristic and um, whereas british femininity is seen as more natural and fresh-faced um, and not consumerist in the same way and the second main characteristic is uh, related to a class which is a defining feature of British identity in a way that it's possibly not in the US. Um, mm. So because the neoliberal post-feminist, the ideal neoliberal post-feminist subject is supposed to be classless or middle class, um, there's a tension there because British texts um, do focus a lot on sort of working class identity and class struggle and um, so we see that characters in some films are not able to overcome their classed identity and become sort of ideal post-feminist girls in some but not in others so it depends on the it depends on the target audience for the films so if I looked at in one of the chapters at um, teen sports films um, like sort of fast girls and shallow girl and bend it like Beckham would be one of the earlier examples that could be included mm -hmm. there and in these kind of um, glossy aspirational sports films the working class protagonist is able to overcome their working class uh, status and, and sort of gain entry into middle class lifestyle but this isn't always possible depending on on the sort of genre of film and the target audience Right, right. But the fact that class is, is so prominently featured, I think, is a very British characteristic because a lot of 
a lot of contemporary British films see class as more of a barrier to success than race, for example, mm. which I thought was was interesting. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. It when you made that comparison between uh, the US and the UK and US as well, um, that reminded me of a study that my supervisor did years and years and years ago. Uh, Justin Lewis did when he was in America on the Cosby Show. Mm. Um, and in relation to class and, and race in a, in a US context, um, it, they were asked to do this project to, to, to look at the Cosby show and to show how it, I think there was the, the expectation that the, this research would be done to show how progressive this show was and so on and so forth. But actually this content analysis they did of it came out as really critical and it was saying, well, actually this program's a reinforcement of the american dream because um the, the structural problems and struggles and obstacles that um that american communities face in terms of race and class um aren't reflected it's just well this lot did have got here there's this doctor and living in this massive house they've got here and they've realized the dream and this is what america is and this is what you could do when in reality that's not how it works so i think if i remember rightly i think <laughs> i think bill cosby was really uh, quite pissed off about it and but it was like well that's what that's what the analysis showed so um but yeah i think that's in a book called the ideological octopus if i remember rightly um to look at that yeah i've seen similar things in my research because obviously the films i was looking at most of them came out during the new labor period uh, particularly if they were sort of um the sports films or sort of teen films set in london it was this idea of the sort of metropolitan city where dreams can come true and you know if you work hard you can achieve your goals and and there's no sort of social inequality and that kind of, those kind of discourses that were a particular feature of the new labor period as well mm, that's really really interesting um in terms of one thing i wanted to uh, us to cover as well just just moving on from your phd you've done brilliantly as an early career researcher now we we, we we often we often talk about the concerns quite rightly as well talk about the concerns and the difficulties and the anxieties and struggles of being an early career researcher and making that break in academia getting you know getting those opportunities and then making the most of them with all the multiple things that you have to to juggle what's do you want to talk about your little your a bit about your experience as an early career researcher and also just dish out any bits of advice that you think are, are little nuggets that people could do with if they're listening as early career researchers or people doing their PhDs? Um, well, I think any advice I give is very much with the caveat that a lot of it is dependent on sort of your economic situation and your financial situation because there obviously is this pressure to, to just take any job because we all need to pay rent. Yes. Um, so I think I do think that needs to be kept in mind when giving advice to, to ECRs because some are able to pursue things in ways that others aren't. Um, I think I, personally, I just think I've been very privileged um, in academia so far. Um, 
I was very lucky I didn't get caught in the sort of cycle of um, teaching fellowships and hourly paid work for more than about a year so I think that really helped me um, stay on on the research track mm. uh, through the early career fellowship that I came to Newcastle for. That was a long um, trip as well from Norwich to Newcastle. Via Cardiff. Via <laughs> Cardiff of course. <laughs> so yeah um, I mean it was difficult at times I don't want to gloss over it too much because there was a year after my um, after my PhD graduation where I had to go and live with my parents because my hourly paid work didn't pay enough to actually rent anywhere so I think you know we have to bear that in mind as well if someone was looking at my trajectory it looks quite smooth but there were sort of um, those other factors coming into it as well. Again the difference between the story and the experience. Yeah <laughs> um, but again I'm very fortunate that I have parents who are willing to put up with me for that long yeah um, and to support me in that way i think if i was going to give any sort of suggestions or advice um i would say while i know that there's a pressure to just apply for all the jobs mm. that come up and, and sort of keep going i think you do really need to consider and i only realized this retrospectively through being at newcastle but you do need to consider whether the department you're uh, trying to work with reflects your research aims and vice versa whether you your research is a good fit for them um because i think that's what um encourages people to work with you and that's what's more yeah. likely to get you longevity within a department is if you can help the department fulfill their particular goals but these goals also closely align with what you want to do in your personal research as well i think that's the most important thing and I think that's where I got lucky with Newcastle because we have such an emphasis on um, doing research into areas of equality and diversity and inclusion through different forms of media because we have colleagues working on topics like race and gender and, and they all sort of tie in together with the kind of work that I do and um, so I think making sure you fit with the department and vice versa is the main one um, if you can afford to take a bit of time to maybe cut back on a little bit of teaching to keep your research time if you can i think that's really important um, especially if you're sort of like i was trying to to get a book out mm. um, and even if you can't afford to cut back on teaching and um, just have a sort of quite a strict uh, plan of when you're going to try and do that research even if it's a little bit at a time yeah, well, I, I think you've been really good at um, protecting your research time and not putting off the difficult task of getting stuck into writing a book. That's like massively important. But you've also, whilst you've always made it clear that the research time that you've been allocated is, is obviously there as part of your the work and time, and you've been very, very clear about protecting it, you haven't shied away from you know developing your, your toolkits in other ways and and learning other skills so embracing the opportunity to teach on a couple of different programs or to supervise students from a couple of different programs or to take on an administrative role that helps you learn the ins and outs of how the department works and to get a closer look at the you know the, the, the structural workings of the institution i think i think that 
that willingness to develop multiple skills whilst protecting the research time in the, the best way you can. Um, it, I think that's really, really important. A lot, of, a lot of weekends and evenings went into the book as well, which is, you know, as much as we try and protect the sort of nine to five working hours, yeah. there was a lot of, a lot of that. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, I think we don't want to be seen to be encouraged, we, whilst we don't want to be seen to be encouraging people to work evenings and weekends, at the same time there's a reality there where you have these, because we care about what we do as well, we like writing and we want to do the book and so on and so forth. You, there are periods where you have to, in many jobs, not just ours, where we put in that extra bit and you don't want it to become a permanent feature of how you work because your employers relied upon you never having a life. <laughs> but I do think the, the reward or the lucky thing about what we do is because we like it, we're willing to put in those hours for those periods where it really matters and you get the rewards at the end. I think it's the same with the marking periods as well though, like we, we don't spend our whole lives marking but there are certain weeks of the year where we know it's going to be a bit of a tough yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I think it's like you say it's temporary and as long as we don't sort of cultivate or promote bad habits full time mm. I think a little bit of that's okay. I think that's a really important point actually on things like marking and also teaching allocation early career researchers or it's not that I shouldn't just put the emphasis on early career researchers people who are responsible for uh, managing teams and leading academic departments with early career researchers in should be really mindful of not overloading uh, um, early career researchers with excessive amounts of teaching, um, really valuing their research space and their research time, uh, giving them time early on in their career to develop in that respect and also to be aware that I mean, I always use the term bottlenecks. I don't want people suffering in silence about bottlenecks. I think as not just early career researchers, but I think as academics, we can sometimes get to these points where you, you kind of, you, the short term pressure of a bottleneck is sometimes can feel overwhelming. You kind of don't want to say anything. I think we need to, as, as teams of academics, foster an environment where we feel comfortable to put our hands up and say, look, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying I've got too much overall, but this thing right now at this moment in time is just too much. Um, I think it, we need to create the, the, the environment in which an, an early career researcher especially can feel that they can say that. I think that the issue as well is that the way the job market is and, and sort of how we learn about it, we're sort of conditioned to feel grateful for any work mm. that we've got. So when you have these huge and I think marking does fall disproportionately on ECRs in a lot of places. So when you have these huge volumes of marking as an ECR, yeah. you don't feel like you can say anything because you're grateful to have any form of contract at yeah. an institution. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I've learned as sort of as I progressed is that everybody feels like that about those big bottleneck marking yeah. periods and it's not a reflection on you not being able to do your job properly if you find it overwhelming yeah and i think managers have an ethical responsibility and this is purely about trust really but team leaders have an ethical responsibility to not make judgments about staff moving forward um just because they've been willing to put their hand up and say something was too much at a certain period of the year i think there's just academic leaders need to be trusted to be ethical in that sense and luckily luckily we work somewhere where 
we're surrounded by nice people who aren't judgmental in that sense at Newcastle. So that's, that's a massive advantage for us. That's the, I don't think I would have progressed as well in some other institutions, I think, because, because mm. I was very lucky that I came to Newcastle on an early career fellowship that had specific characteristics. And one of those was a sort of smaller proportion of teaching compared to a full-time lecturer. So my research time was protected mm. as part of the role and most of my teaching was related to my expertise and research interests mm. um, so I, which also in turn helped my research because i found that i find that when you have to teach topics and explain them to other people it really clarifies what you think about them yeah 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 and having the advantage of taking the yeah your research into the classroom and doing research-led teaching is just is one of the most rewarding parts of the job as well yeah my only other bit of advice would be just to have a clear plan for what you want to do even if yeah. you don't end up achieving it it's about showing that that you know what you want to do and you know that you you can do it and how you're going to go about it yeah certainly yeah certainly to have that plan and also to not not worry if the plan changes as well at least have a plan to begin with and a sense of direction and purpose and if if those things change along the way I think sometimes we can get um, too precious about how we think things have to go. If the, ch if the plan changes, then think about why it's changed and see the positives in that and try and respond to the reasons why and, and just move with it. Um, but yeah, uh, despite everything we said, I think the key thing is to try and, just to try and relax and enjoy it the best you can because it's a real privilege to do what we do. Yeah, I think so. I reckon we've run out of time. Yeah. Um, but this is a really, really brilliant way to finish the first series of the podcast. Um, thank you for being a really great colleague. Um, and especially recently, with everything we've had to do, you've really stepped up and um, helped the team. So I just want to make sure everybody knows that while you're on here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, and maybe... One day after this world of COVID, we may be back in the crow's nest in Newcastle mm. having a pint. You never know. But for now, I'll uh, say goodbye and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye.